All right. Uh, you know, the last time I did this, I was on the, the, uh, the Sunday of the Super Bowl, and that, that deeply scarred me about running too long. So <laughs> my audience kept slipping away and slipping away. Uh, and so I'm going to uh, go ahead and get started. And uh, as uh, Carla said, uh, the goal here is to leave enough time so that we might have a period of questions and answers about all of this. <clears throat> and I apologize, my voice may come and go. Uh, we were on this marvelous vacation for almost two weeks and then in Mexico and then came back uh, and then we got sick. So this is where, <laughs> this is how life is. Um, so uh, as Carla said, you know, I think this is my fifth time doing um, uh, the Epworth Winter Bible Institute, but I think I've never really introduced myself because I just figured most of you uh, knew me and I didn't have to go through it. But I wanted to say a little bit about myself uh, just because, a little bit more about myself, just because it'll have to do with uh, the presentation or the lecture uh, that I'm going to give. And um, this, this lecture, despite the timeliness of it and the way that it fits with the um, general theme of the Winter Bible uh, Institute. It's something that I've been working on for quite a while and kind of noodling over. Uh, and uh, of course, the title of it is Sacred Crossings, Shaped Identities, and Cosmopolitan Hopes. And if I do my job well, I'll, uh, in the course of the presentation, I'll describe to you what each of those things mean uh, separately and together. Um, but as I said, I started noodling over the major components of this paper uh, actually a number of years ago. And in my mind, and so those of you who are academics know this, I've been writing this paper to present at the American Academy of Religion for many, many years now. Uh, and so hopefully maybe this presentation will give me the boost that I need uh, to go on to the American Academy of Religion annual meeting, which is a group of five to 10,000 religious scholars from all around the world who meet annually. So it's really a religious geek fest. Uh, and uh, usually I dread it, but it is the place that if you're going to make a presentation or publish a paper, you eventually have to show up at. So. Um, which brings me to my second thought. So uh, in the five years that I've been doing this, I have to admit, I've been coddling you all just a little bit. So I've been throwing in pictures of, of little kitties with big eyes and adorable puppies and other feel-good things that make you uh, feel great about uh, religious life. Uh, and I'm gonna push you a little bit today. We're gonna move from feel-good adult ed to uh, something more like uh, graduate school light. So for those of you who graduate school was a beautiful and wonderful experience for you, um, wonderful. And for those who didn't go, chose not to go, or it wasn't that kind of experience, well, welcome back. You, now you'll have more empathy with the Pacific School of Religion students. All right, um, so I want to say a word about uh, my method, uh, because I just imagine that at some point someone in the audience is going to say, what is this crazy man talking about? So uh, just a word about uh, the method. So first, uh, my training is as a social ethicist uh, who has uh, profound Christian commitments. I can't think of 
the other um, social ethicist and his wife, who was United Methodist, who came here for a while, who was teaching at PLTS. But he would always describe himself as a Christian social ethicist. Uh, I know that because I was on his hiring committee. Um, but I describe myself as a social ethicist with profound uh, Christian and religious commitments. And I could explain that difference to you, but I think you get it, and it would take up all of my time. Uh, and so my interests really then, uh, my scholarly and writing and teaching interests really are at the intersections of religion, morality, and politics. So most of uh, my PSR students know me for my courses in Christian ethics. It's a required course, so I, I, I revel in that I get to shape, i.e. torture, every student who comes through PSR who's getting an MDiv. Uh, uh, but really, uh, my stronger interests outside of the sort of the Christian ethics sphere are really how religion and morality and politics intersect. Uh, and as a social ethicist, which is different than theological ethics, as a social ethicist, my starting points are usually the societal ills and problems of society. And so I don't start with, uh, for example, the existence of God and the doctrines of, uh, of God and the Trinity. I actually start the other way. I start from the problems and ills of society and what's happening all around us and try and make my way through um, the resources that we're given in terms of, of Christian tradition. Uh, and as my uh, students and former students and some of you should know, particularly in the United Methodist tradition, the four moral sources that we draw on are scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. Um, I went to, uh, I did my seminary work at a Southern school uh, back before it changed into a progressive Southern school at Emory University. And it was so hidebound that I instantly threw myself into critical theory so I could do battle with the hidebound nature of religious teachings. And so you'll find that I use a lot of critical theory uh, in my uh, presentations and lectures as well. That has become a thing now at PSR. I think all of the presentations you'll hear from the PSR faculty and the Winter Bible Institute uh, use critical theory. At one point, I was on the cutting edge, but somewhere along the line, the cutting edge uh, caught up with me and surpassed me. So um, the theme for this year's uh, Winter Bible Institute is borders and identity. I've added identities because I think you can't really talk about identity anymore. We have to, if, as long as there's one or more people in the room, we have to talk about identities. Even we individually carry more, uh, carry more than one identity, and those identities shift and uh, move forward or back as we navigate different social circumstances. So the question that we were asked by uh, the very astute team, um, most of whom I don't know, who created this Winter Bible uh, Institute theme was, how do the borders we cross and the boundaries we transgress shape our identities? Uh, and so I'm going to try very close, I'm going to try uh, to 
closely tacked to that questions, but I've also added some questions of my own that I want to address, because after all, um, this is the purpose of the paper, the presentation. So the other questions that I've added to that one question is, why is welcoming the stranger, the alien, the, sojour the sojourner such, such a hotly contested issue, particularly in religious spaces? despite clear biblical injunctions to do exactly that. Why is the, why is the, the welcoming of the stranger, the alien, or the sojourner, which in terms of biblical terms means someone of a different tribal, cultural, or national, and sometimes even religious background, why is that so contested in religious spaces? That's really the driving question of the, the lecture and the paper that I'm writing. And then the second question is, are there helpful or unhelpful beliefs and teachings within the Christian tradition and experience that can help us tackle this issue of welcoming the alien, the sojourner, um, uh, and the, the, well, the, the stranger? And by the way, stranger, alien, sojourner, these are all different terms. These are all different uh, English terms for the same Hebrew word. Right, and so the King James has, I think, sojourner, which is my favorite. Strangers and aliens are also different interpretations. It's this group of people who don't fit in to the mainstream of ancient society. So why do we have such problems, particularly in the Christian tradition, with welcoming those folks, even though there are clear biblical teachings about that? And then are there, un, are there helpful and unhelpful beliefs and teachings within the Christian experience that can help us tackle this issue? So I want to start um, by bringing you in. So this is when we move out of uh, happy talk about the Christian life is all a faith journey and we're all headed and da 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 to really beginning to examine and getting a deeper understanding of our religious tradition and the realm of faith that we operate into. And so I want to suggest to you, and I've said this in each of the previous four lectures that I've offered, but I want to say it to you again, that religious spaces are contested spaces. So the reason why I didn't put in the picture of the big, uh, the puppy with the big eyes that everyone oozes about is because I wanted us to think more about not the safe images of religion and tradition, uh, of Christian tradition, but really that Christian uh, tradition and uh, religious spaces are contested spaces. And that by that I mean that writ large, religious spaces, Christian spaces are places that include conflicting beliefs, affirmations, and interpretations made by increasingly diverse sets of actors, both past and present, each claiming their own source of authority. So uh, I don't know if any of you know about Franklin Graham, uh, who's the son of Billy Graham, and please, we're in religious space, so no hissing and booing or um, throwing up. I can do that myself. But he, he did a tour of California uh, for right before the 2018 election, to remember that. And one of his statements he made, mostly in Southern California, he didn't really venture north. 
<laughs> we don't put up with that kind of thing uh, in Northern California. But he said that progressive, progressive Christians really aren't Christians. You know, we're something else. Uh, and that uh, really because we don't tack to his understanding of the Bible, blah, 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 we weren't Christians. So that's what I mean. That we, uh, taken as a big tent, all of us exist in this big tent that includes Franklin Graham, it includes Palestinian Christians, it includes Israeli Christians, it includes people from all over the world, it includes cantankerous people right here. I don't know if you've ever been to a religious faculty meeting, but <clears throat> they run for three hours or so, uh, and we debate and discuss, and so, Yes, uh, religious space is contested space. Uh, and we, particularly in Protestant circles, we have a crisis of authority about what's the final authority in religious life. And before you answer that, I'll tell you that if you say that you have one, someone in the room will tell you that that's not true. Uh, we, uh, religious space is contested space. And then here's the deeper one, and I don't mean this in psychological terms, I'm actually talking about sociological terms, but it will sound psychological, that uh, religious belief systems are multi-tiered. So imagine that uh, Christian tradition and Christ the, the system of Christian beliefs is this huge storehouse that has the good, the bad, and the ugly all stored in it, right? Because the, tr the Christian tradition now is 2,000 years old, right? Uh, and so within that belief system, you have all of these conflicting, overlapping, and some similar beliefs floating around in this storehouse. And some of them, some of the beliefs in that huge storehouse are very visible to us. So I wanna to suggest to you that the tradition about welcoming the stranger, particularly in liberal and progressive spaces, that's very visible to you. And I'll talk about this more in a minute, but I probably don't have to convince many of the people in the room today that there's a long biblical tradition that says, welcome the stranger, the alien, the sojourner. We hear about it here at Epworth almost every Sunday. It's part of the, the, the biblical injunctions that we say to ourselves all the time for good reason. Uh, uh, but there are also subconscious and unconscious parts, uh, belief system, beliefs that are hidden in that huge storehouse. Uh, and it's not that because they, uh, that we're largely unconscious of or unaware of them that they've gone away. They still exert influence in that big storehouse. So uh, in 1983, when I went away to seminary, no, 19, yes, 1983, when I went away to seminary in the South, I went in advance of the, the regular semester starting to a summer semester at Emory that was kind of a mistake because it, it was the, uh, it was a it was a training for local pastors, not those who have actually gone through the uh, full seminary education, but people who are aspiring to be or not aspiring to be. And it was in the South. Uh, and much to my dismay, one of the pastors who was from church, some church deep in South, local church deep in South Georgia, said stood up in the middle of one of the sessions and said, "Everybody knows." that black people stand under the curse of Ham. And therefore, 
That's why black people have, he didn't say it in quite these kind words, black people have all of these problems going on to them. Now, I, I was a 23-year-old from a good liberal church, you know, uh, in the lower north, Maryland. I had never heard of the curse of Ham, let alone having someone say it from uh, in a religious space. But as a matter of fact, if you dig through the storehouse of Christian teachings, there's a long ideological belief system about the curse of Ham that's rooted in biblical interpretation that suggests that black people are inferior to white people. And it didn't, uh, it didn't, it wasn't abolished, it wasn't, didn't evaporate. It only went unconscious when the civil rights movement got fully going. And so it wasn't that this pastor from South Georgia, or wherever he was from, was saying something that wasn't within the full context of the Christian tradition. He had just, read, he had just pulled out a half-buried ideology or teaching that used to be highly visible in parts of the Christian tradition and recited it. And no one had told him, oh, oh things have changed. We're not singing that song anymore. Right, that's what he didn't understand. So that's my point that within the Christian tradition writ large, within our belief systems, we have conscious, subconscious, and unconscious teachings. And if we are wise and smart and wanna move beyond religion or Christianity 101, we'll want to know what are those subconscious and unconscious teachings that still flow through the Christian tradition. Because if you particularly look on the, the internet, you'll see that they pop up time and time. They're not dead, they're only in the darkest corners of religious experience. <clears throat> now here's the next thing. None of you have gotten up screaming or run out of the room, so I think we're pretty safe here. So what I've said for the Christian tradition is the same for the biblical tradition or the, uh, the tradition of sacred text. Within our sacred text, there are conscious, subconscious, and unconscious elements that we have to attend to. A few years ago at General Conference, boo, hiss, <coughs> um, <laughs> a, um, the, a, the Church and Society Legislative Committee uh, was wrestling with a piece of legislation that was written not in the dark recesses of the United Methodist Church, uh, but out of one of the official committees of the church. And they were wrestling with the issue of mental and physical disabilities. And the scripture that they used in conjunction with uh, physical and mental disabilities, and they meant this to be liberative, was Jesus throwing out the demons out uh, of the little girl and into the pig, you know, the curing of the demoniac. So within the broad span of Jewish and uh, Christian traditions, there is a tradition that mentally ill people are actually inhabited by demons. And uh, much to my dismay and the dismay of others, particularly those uh, suffering from mental uh, illnesses or disabilities, someone very well-intentioned had gone through that huge storehouse uh, and uh, tapped into that unconscious memory about demons and mental illness and cited that as a scriptural reference. So that's what I mean. If we're not 
if we don't try and make ourselves at least a little aware of these subconscious and unconscious things within the biblical text and the Christian tradition, we're doomed to repeat them in ways that uh, will fail us. And I just want to suggest to you, no matter how well intended, suggesting that mentally ill people are inhabited by demons, metaphorically, symbolically, literally, in any way you can imagine it, is wrong and not helpful. And probably everyone in this room will agree. All right, uh, so uh, uh, Dr. Bo Young Lee is not here, so I can say whatever, I, I can summarize her <laughs> in whatever way. She can't correct me, although she'll be here in a couple of weeks. So um, uh, uh, Dr. Lee has reminded us over and over again on, in the PSR faculty that we have to attend to the null curriculum, particularly as it pertains to scripture. So what is it on the surface that we believe that scripture teaches, teaches us, and then what subconsciously and unconsciously is scripture saying to us? And I want to suggest to you that uh, Consciously, one of the things we lift up is Paul's statement that says that we uh, basically we are all equal in Christ. It doesn't matter if we're male, female, Gentile, or Jew. So consciously, we repeat that a lot. But subconsciously and unconsciously in Scripture, there's a thoroughgoing belief that women are subordinate to men. And so almost every time you quote scripture, whether you mean it, uh, whether you have good intentions or bad intentions, you're evoking that unconscious, subconscious belief, hopefully the roof will stay with us until I finish, um, that uh, women are subordinate to men. That it, it's an assumption that every biblical writer had. Uh, and unless we are conscious of that and are willing to tackle that uh, and uh, bring that into our understanding, we will pass that on to future generations because it's in our storehouse and there are some beliefs, even though they're barely visible to us, that for some reason we go back to time and time again. So in the Episcopal Church, which I think is the most, one of the most liberal churches in America, when they wrestled in the 80s with women becoming pastors, the reasons why uh, some Episcopal leaders said that women couldn't be pastors was uh, because of the monthly, the time of the month that they went through. And so that women could not possibly be priests and pastors and stand up the altar because of that time of the month. And from a rational perspective, it just sounds crazy to me, just crazy. But if you dig into the, uh, the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible, you'll see that that's the subtext about why, one of the reasons why women are subordinate to men, because that's the punishment that came uh, at the beginning of human history, according to some traditions in the story of uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, and so, again, this is to say that unless we're more consciously aware of the breadth of our tradition, uh, we may be doomed to relive all of that. All right, so all of that was laying tread, uh, we call it, or introductory comments. I know it went on a while, but I want to make sure I don't lose you. So the question is, and maybe it's because I'm, I teach graduate students half-time for a living, 
why bother with any of this, right? So just let's just go on and live our lives. Let's not worry about theology, religion, blah, 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 blah. Uh, this question comes up a lot, particularly in on the West Coast. And the reasons to bother is, I, why bother around this is, one, the better understanding that we have of the Christian faith, if I, as I've already said, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the better informed our Christian witness and discipleship will be. So I'm a, the vice president, which will soon end, thank goodness, of the General Board of Church and Society. Uh, and in my first quadrennium there, um, the, um, come on brain, kick back in. Um, they, um, wow, I, I'm queuing in on the sermon this morning. Um, the, the event that took place in St. Louis where an unarmed black man was shot down happened. And uh, I, was, I was terribly angry. Ferguson, thank you. Terribly angry. And I waited for the General Board of Church and Society to respond. And the, in their first response, in their public release, what they said was, uh, Christians ought to be obedient to the authorities. And I thought, wait a minute, this is the liberal progressive board of the church. Where in the heck did they pull out this thing? They pulled out a long-standing Christian tradition about how we ought to behave in the face of the authorities. And I raged because it was a restatement of the injustice that was happening in the larger society. Why bother? Because to be a member of any institution is to become complicit in its worst mistakes and greatest triumphs. To benefit from the privileges of membership and shirk the responsibility uh, that it entails is to live ahistorically and anachronistically. So I really have no patience with members of the United Methodist Church who tell me that they don't want to deal with the legacy of the church, then you probably should never have signed up as members because once you signed up, you began benefiting from both the privileges and the responsibilities of membership. So pull up your big girl, big, big guy, big sibling pants and take on the responsibilities of the tradition that we have inherited. And then finally, why bother? Because in the dynamic market of ideas, some which are harmful, some not, we must become skillful tenders, custodians, and interpreters of our own religious traditions. So if you can't articulate what is at the heart of the Christian faith and what are the beliefs uh, and commitments that we have about the world around us, then who do you imagine will articulate that for you? Franklin Graham. Uh, so uh, why bother? Because it, it, it matters. So I want to switch now um, to the substantive, more substantive content. And I want to say, which tell you what you already know. So in the, in, within both the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew and the Christian Bibles, there's a well-established and long-standing tradition about welcoming the stranger the sojourner and the alien. And again, the word stranger here in the biblical context refers to those of different tribes, different cultures, different nationalities, and implicitly uh, those of different religions. Uh, and I've cited here from the 
earliest point of scripture to the latest point from the Hebrew Bible to the Christian Bible, all of the sites, including the teachings of Jesus, that talk about welcoming the stranger, the sojourner, and the alien. And of course, Jesus's innovation to that tradition was to say, actually, the stranger is your neighbor. You think that they're the stranger, but they're your neighbor and that you have an obligation to those who you perceive are the stranger. So I'm not going to spend much time on this because if you, have, if you come to Epworth, even as sporadically as I come to Epworth, you have heard the scriptures about welcoming people, right? That's just, and I don't have to convince you that this is deeply embedded in the Christian tradition. Uh, in comparison, the teachings about homosexuality in the biblical tradition are about this big in the whole tradition. The teachings about welcoming the strangers are about this big. The teachings about homosexuality are about big. The teachings about poverty are about that big. And so now you see how we spend our time as a, as a church. So, um, so my question, if you'll remember earlier, was then, uh, so we have this strong, let's call it a conscious tradition of welcoming the alien and the sojourner and the stranger. Great. So why doesn't that resolve the hotly contested issues in religious spaces? Uh, and why, why isn't that the authoritative word about how we should address these folks who are strangers, aliens, uh, and sojourners? Uh, and I wanna suggest to you that um, there within the biblical tradition, there's a resistant tradition that I call the anti-welcoming tradition that's also carried on throughout the Hebrew and Christian Bibles and her, has survived through the period of the early church into the modern church and the postmodern church. And that's the purity tradition. So the purity, uh, Bill Countryman, who used to teach at the GTU, has written extensively about biblical purity laws I call them PTL, as long as you don't confuse that with Jim and Tammy Baker's old thing, although that was a little bit about purity as well. But um, the, the PTA, PLT tradition, oops, purity, oh, no, PL, PLT tradition is posed throughout the Hebrew and Christian Bible as an anti-welcoming tradition. It has its roots in Deuteronomy uh, and Leviticus and creates these sharp distinctions because between those who are the chosen people of God and all those others. And those sharp distinctions are made on the basis of uh, religious, social, social and political distinctions between different sexes, different tribes, different cultures, different nationalities on the basis of religion, food, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and what the, the purity law tradition does is it sets in all of these rigid political, social, uh, and, and class boundaries between different groups of people. And the purpose of that is to reinforce who the chosen people are uh, in, within the religious tradition. Uh, and it goes more than that. So it's not just this innocuous thing about, you know, you like green, I like blue, you know, never the twain shall meet, but you're okay and I'm okay. It's more than that. What the purity, tradi the purity tradition um, presupposes and suggests is that to mix, touch, or otherwise traverse these carefully carved out boundaries is to become ritually impure, impure 
an outcast. So it's not you, a blue person, can't touch a green person because to do so means that you become ritually pure and outcast. So <clears throat> even though it's lo somewhat lost to us, some of the ritually impure people that you could not touch um, that were, live next door uh, to where Jesus grew up were the Samaritans. And so his story over and over again that we can't fully appreciate, his interactions with the Samaritans is his subverting of the religious purity laws. When he's talking with the Samaritan woman, when he's talking about the good Samaritan who helps the person who's harmed, he's trying to subvert these deeply held, this deeply held religious tradition that not only says that we are different, but that the other person is less than we are. Uh, and that even to interact with that person makes us impure or outcast. So keep that, the, the biblical uh, purity law tradition in mind. Uh, now, it, um, uh, that tradition is quite conscious throughout most of the Hebrew Bible, but becomes barely visible and less conscious and unconscious, carried through the, the early church period, into the modern church, and certainly into the postmodern church. Now, just so you know that I'm not just uh, picking on religious people and particularly the ancient Hebrew tradition. I want to bring in Julia Kristeva and Imogen Tyler, who are two postmodern feminist uh, writers who focus on what they call the process of social objection. Uh, and how it works in human communities. So both of them, and as well as a whole body of other theories, believe that when they uh, observe human communities and the shaping of human identities, uh, what often happens is that we become parts of closed circles of human community. Circles that become safe, where you feel you can't be uh, can't be touched by external threats, you know, you can, um, you're not challenged. We become part uh, of these ever-increasing safe circles of human community that exclude others who are opposed as a threat. So the ambiguity of this social, uh, what uh, Tyler and Kristeva call this social abjection process, is they both, uh, this closed circle of human community keeps us safe, but also keeps us from growing and developing in a healthy and mature way. Uh, and so we end up in these closed circles of human community that block out the very others that might bring life, vitality, etc., into our communities, right? Uh, and they go beyond this to say, so therefore, the process, to really understand the process of social objection, we have to realize that it's both a kind of expulsion and loathing of those others who present a threat to our way of life or our closed circle of community, but we also have a desire for them to come in because we intuitively perceive that they might bring the health and vitality that we need. So it's a kind of push me, pull you idea of how we deal with others beyond the closed 
circle of human communities. I want to just suggest to you that if you have ever visited around churches in the United Methodist Church lately, you'll see that we are becoming these ever increasingly closed circles of human community uh, with a majority of people being between the ages of 50 and 75, knowing each other very well, understanding uh, the implicit and explicit assumptions that cause our communities to run, to uh, function, but also that uh, drive out other folks, newcomers who come to the door because they don't fit in. Uh, and this happens in all kinds of communities. Again, uh, in my first job in Nashville, I walked into what I didn't understand was an extremely wealthy black church. Uh, and I, I'm no shirker myself. I do come from a solid middle-class background. So I, I think I can trip into a black church, a, a black bougie church and not be alarmed. Uh, but I was alarmed when one of the ushers said to me, yeah, most of us here were born with a silver spoon in my mouth, in our mouths. And I said, well, ours were a little bit more like stainless steel, but they were good quality stainless steel. <laughs> Closed circles of human community that exclude others that might bring vitality, health, and life and create these hybrid spaces that is a combined space of the old and the new where we could develop, grow, uh, and move forward. So again, I want to come back to this question. And again, this is from teaching uh, graduate students, but also having conversations in the, in the bars of the, of the western part of the United States. So why care about all this? Um, and one reason to care about the, the, the purity law tradition is that I want to suggest to you that uh, there is a secular equivalent of that purity law tradition that is frequently invoked in religious and non-religious settings. So I hope I don't have to um, call to mind the many, 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 many statements are of our current commander in chief, who often goes beyond saying that these people are different than than we are to saying that they're sick, they're criminals, they're nasty, they're impure, uh, and to relate to them as to be outcast. So it, it, that seems to me, and uh, our commander in chief is not the only one who invokes that, that uh, secular equivalent of the purity laws. And by the way, he does it explicitly invoking religious traditions, by the way. So if you didn't see him at the national prayer breakfast, uh, clue into that and see that uh, whatever is happening is not just in secular space, but in religious space as well. Uh, and uh, clue into the fact that some of our evangelical brothers and sisters are quite silent about, uh, about the president's invoking of the secular and religious equivalent of the purity law tradition. Um, such invocations in the secular equivalent of this tradition are not only, not only reify social differences, but they cast strangers, aliens, and sojourners as threats or as dirty people or nasty outsiders. How often have we heard this? Uh, why care? Because this dehumanization of other people is undergirded by quasi-religious scaffolding 
that has been repurposed for secular political life. And if it's not we who live in religious community who stand up and challenge the continuation of this bad quasi-religious scaffolding being repurposed in political life, then who will do it? It's from our community writ large over time, religious communities that this scaffolding has emerged and it's our job to help dismantle it in political, social, and religious life. Uh, so my time is running out quickly, so I wanna um, turn to a hopeful note because what I've tried to do, uh, is someone said, is air the dirty laundry of the Christian tradition and get you riled up about that dirty laundry and not pretending that the dirty laundry isn't hanging out on the line. Uh, uh, so now that we know about the dirty laundry, and hopefully I've convinced some of you that we have to do something about our dirty laundry, I want to harken back to uh, Toni Morrison and what she says about the power of memory. Um, and I want to quickly just, if I have it, read. So if you haven't read Toni Morrison's The Sight of Memory, Proceedings Too Terrible to Relate, read it sometime when you we have the time. It's so powerful and transformative. Uh, and uh, in, hopefully I have it. Yes. Yeah, it's a site of, the site of memory, uh, proceedings too terrible to relate. I know you two will love it. <laughs> you two backbenchers will love it. Um, <clears throat> Uh, and what Morrison says is that the power of memory uh, in the face of these, uh, of, uh, these public atrocities uh, and the way that we continually and ongoingly mistreat aliens, strangers, and sojourners, that the power of memory uh, can be redemptive. Uh, and she notes that uh, what she's talking about in sites of the site of memory is she does a, uh, a study of slave narratives written, so narratives written by slaves about slavery, slave narratives. Uh, and she notices in, uh, that in the 18th century, none of the authors of the slave narratives actually t say fully how terribly, uh, terrible slavery was because the convention of the day is not to be too revealing of your emotional side or the cost of slavery. And so what she notes is that uh, uh, writers as famous as Frederick Douglass have kind of gloss over when they get to a difficult part to talk about um, the, um, the, for example, the rape and sexual violence. They gloss over that and they go on to some other thing that is less um, uh, problematic. Uh, and uh, what, what uh, Morrison says is that she understands that that was their survival technique for then. But for now, in these times, we have a different story. We have to take different strategies to overcome the process of processes of alienation in modern life. And this is what she writes. For me, a writer in the last quarter of the 20th century, not much more than 100 years after the emancipation, a writer who is black and a woman, the exercise that is telling the story of oppression is very different. My job becomes how to rip the, that veil drawn 
over proceedings too terrible to relate. This is the gloss that many people, many of the slave narratives say. They, they say, well, this was something that's too terrible to relate in a public narrative, so I keep it private. But what Morrison says is, my job is to rip the veil off of those proceedings too terrible to relate. The exercise is also critical for any person who is black or who belongs to any marginalized category, for historically we were seldom invited to participate in discourse when the topics were difficult. Moving the veil requires, therefore, certain things. First of all, we must trust our own recollections. I must also depend on the recollections of others. Thus, memory weighs heavily in what I write, in how I began, and in what I find to be significant. I'm running out of time, so I won't read the entire quote, but the most important part of that quote is the power of memory, the determination to rip the veil off of the public scaffolding uh, of, uh, of alienation, oppression, and the mistreatment of others. Uh, and I want to suggest to you that in a beautiful way, that story, I want to end with this, that story of ripping the veil off of the history of alienation and oppression and the power of collective memory survives in uh, both the accounts of the welcoming tradition given in the Hebrew Bible and in the, uh, in the Christian Bibles. So the, the welcoming tradition in the Hebrew Bible emerges not out of some grand theory about how we should treat each other well, it, it emerges out of the real experience of the ancient Hebrew people of being oppressed several times over. It's collective memory that inserts into the biblical text against all odds that we will welcome the alien, the sojourner, and the stranger because once we were an oppressed people, the power of collective memory. And in the Christian Bible, in the earliest Christian communities, the reason why they preserved the teachings of Jesus about welcoming the stranger as your neighbor and defending the stranger, the alien, the sojourner, is because they themselves were aliens, sojourners, and strangers in the Roman Empire. So they weren't the wealthy uh, upper class uh, or the elite of the Roman Empire. They were the absolute dregs. And we tend to spiritualize it in Christian life. And we say, oh, you know, sojourners. Sojourners are people who are walking from here to there. But they meant that they were actually resident aliens with no ability to become citizens of the empire that they inhabited. They were the absolute dregs. And what that power of collective memory does in early Christian communities is to lift within the teachings of Jesus this tradition that you have to be welcoming to others, the stranger, the sojourner, and the alien, because we are they. And so we, the spiritual descendants of the writers of the Hebrew Bible, and of early Christian communities have to ask ourselves then, 
do we, can we share in this collective, subversive memory about welcoming aliens, strangers, and sojourners? Or will we preach the gospel and of uh, the empire, the secular version of the purity laws that describes others, not that describes other human beings, not only as excluded others, but outcast, impure, sinner, nasty persons. That's the challenge of these two conflicting uh, belief systems in the scriptures and in the large warehouse of Christian history. Thank you very much.